0: All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for March fifth. Is that what it is? March fifth, twenty twenty one. We are back after uh, being off last week and, and me trying to broadcast from a car uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we're we're back to a somewhat normal situation, uh, and we're all we're all here except uh, Caroline Hill and uh, Zach. I haven't heard from Zach actually. I don't know where Zach is. Uh, And Caroline Hill said she might join us. Uh, I'm hoping she does so we can get the latest on uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, because we're all on the edges of our seats uh, regarding that. But uh, this is the show in which we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation. I am Bob Ambrogi. I am the author of the blog, Law Sites, and also host of the podcast, Law Next. And our panelists, our usual panelists, are all here almost. Uh, So let's introduce yourselves. Victoria, you want to kick us off?
1: Sure. My name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter with ALM, where I'm mostly write for Legal Tech News, where I write about cybersecurity, the legal tech industry, and how lawyers and legal industry is using technology. I won't have any news about uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, but you know, there definitely have been some legal tech developments this week. So look forward to sharing that.
0: Good, Joe. How about you?
2: Yeah, Joe. Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the uh, Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast, which just had its 200th episode spectacular. Um, oh, so yeah, yeah, no, it, uh, who knew it would last that long? Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, I also, well, I have definite opinions on this uh, Meghan Markle thing, but I don't, uh, I, I figure I'll talk about other stuff while we're here,
0: okay? Uh, Victor.
3: Hi, my name is Victor Lee. I am Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal. I handle business of law and technology. Um, I I have not been following the Meghan Markle thing. Um, <laughs> the only princess in my house is this one right here. So, uh, Steve?
4: Oh, <laughs> I'm usually at the tail end. <laughs> you caught me asleep. I'm Steve Embry. I published the uh, The blog Tech Law Crossroads, which is about legal technology and innovation and disruption in the legal system. Uh, In addition to that, I am Vice Chair of the American Bar Association Law Practice Division, and next week we kick off our 2021 Tech Show, which will be an all-virtual event. Um, So if you haven't registered or looked at it, I hope that you do. In fact, it was about a year ago that I went to my last in-person event, which was last year's ABA tech show. So it's sort of uh, bittersweet to think that here we are a year later and we're still not back together, but hoping for 2022.
0: (laughs) All right, Nikki?
5: My name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with MyCase Law Practice Management Software. I'm also an attorney and the legal, um, a legal tech columnist. And I write legal tech columns for um, Above the Law, The Daily Record, and um, My Case Blog, and The ABA Journal. And I was just thinking, I never have mentioned this before. I'm not sure why, but Molly was the editor at The ABA Journal, and she's the one that... in you know, reached out to me and um, invited me or talked to, started talking to me about the possibility of doing a column, which was super exciting. And Victor's currently my editor. So I I never really mentioned the fact that um, it was Molly's graciousness and kindness that helped me actually sort of start writing that. So I really appreciate that. And I always appreciate Victor's input. Um, uh, But in any event, um, you all may not know this, but The Queen and I are quite close and she's whispered a lot of things in my ear about what's been happening, but I'm not at liberty to share them. So unfortunately, I can't give you the inside scoop. All
0: right. Well, uh, take just a moment for a group hug there and then move on to Molly.
6: After that hug, I'm Molly McDonough. (laughs) I'm a media uh, strategist based in the Chicago area, former editor at the ABA Journal and it um, was my pleasure to bring you on board, Nikki. It was uh, your talent that I was uh, looking to um, um, share with the rest of, of uh, the legal profession. So thank you for that. And you, you were, I also, were you in our first class of legal rebels? Maybe? I was.
5: Yeah. And I, I don't know yeah. if you reached out to me. I don't mean to, I'm not sure. We talked about it. I, I don't know quite how it came about. Yeah. I don't mean to, like, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I was in the first <laughs> class of legal rebels. I'll okay. take all
6: credit. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, and I write at the blog um, uh, the blog Adjust Society.
0: And no, Courtney, this is not the Oprah show. Um, so so you know Steve, Steve is holding out hopes that maybe a Tech show uh, 2022 will be live. Uh, the folks at ILTA are not waiting for 2022. Uh, they have apparently all gotten their vaccines and they are have announced that they are returning to a live conference uh In August, at uh, in Vegas, at uh, which hotel? I forget which hotel they're at. Uh, and I wore my Bellagio shirt in case it was there. But have they, said
5: the, they, have they said, said, the said the
0: hotel? They have said the hotel. I actually am working on which one it is. Uh, I actually interviewed uh, them the other day, but my interview hasn't posted yet. Um, and got a lot of got a little more details uh, uh, on the whole thing. um But uh, so so here's my question: Is this? Premature or are people? Are, who who here will go to ILTA?
2: Joe, that's it. I saw a few oh. more hands. Yeah, there. Okay. I
5: probably will. I'm getting my second vaccine next week, so I feel pretty good about getting out and about. Depending on what happens. I uh, like the. Um, I, I'm, no. not,
3: I'm not. I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just going to no. <laughs> Mandalay I, Bay is do... where it is.
5: I was gonna book Italy. the hotel. Like, um, I think it was Mark Palmer had suggested. You yeah. know, book the hotel with a right to cancel and play it by ear. I think that's right. a good way to do it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they got like a great a great deal from you know, whatever hotel, yeah, Mandalay Bay or whatever. I mean, they're probably desperate for the business. I mean, but I don't know. I I I felt like it was a little optimistic on their part. But if they if they know people are willing to come and they have protocols in place, you know, for the people that aren't vaccinated and, you know, to make sure that people feel safe and they're, you know, and and, I mean, hopefully there should be a lot of space available in that hotel. So they're not all going to be crammed into like one little, one tiny little room. But I mean, I don't know. I I mean, look, you know, I, you know, I want to get back to normal as much as possible. I want to kind of, you know, be able to go out without a mask on and and, and do things that, you know, I want to do, but yeah, August seems a little, a, a, a little, a little optimistic, but who knows? Maybe maybe, oh. maybe,
4: it won't be. As you can see, I've had my second vaccine. I'm feeling fine. <laughs> I'm all ready to go to the, to the Delta conference, uh, even though, quite honestly, I may be the only one there. But uh, in any event, uh, at least it's a uh, reason for some optimism.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I'll go. I, I just, I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'm just feeling lucky because I just survived three weeks in Florida and uh, you know, nobody's wearing a mask down there and people are congregating in bars and restaurants and the streets are busy with people. Um, and uh, I am, I did, I got a date for my vaccine. I don't have it yet, but I do have a, a date. So I feel like I really scored a coup there. Um, but um yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, th- I think I'll probably certainly I'll follow Nikki's lead and at least book a room. And then, uh, you know, I won't buy a plane ticket just yet. But, uh, I, I think a big question, though, is going to be what about the rest of the world? I mean, international travel is going to be a real issue there, I think. I, you know, I think there's still going to be restrictions on international travel, even by August. And a lot of their audience is international. And, uh, you know, the other big comment I've seen on Twitter has just been that even though people may be ready to travel, their firms or organizations may not be ready to fund their travel at that point. And so they're going to be footing the bill if they want to go. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, who knows, who knows what the turnout's going to be there. They're hoping for a good turnout. I did, I did uh, uh, interview uh, them, uh, the the uh, heads of uh, ILTA for uh my, uh, TV show, uh, that'll be on next Wednesday. Uh, uh, that used to be a live show and now we're pre-recording them. And so that'll be up on uh, Wednesday morning and they didn't give me a whole lot of other details, but they do plan to have, there will be an exhibit hall. Uh, there will be, uh, parties. (laughs) They think, uh, you know, they're still trying to figure out masks will be mandatory. Uh, they will be spacing out, you know, things in the exhibit hall, but it will still be enclosed. So, uh, I don't, you know, you know I, Vegas in August is not somewhere you go and do stuff outside. So, um, who knows?
1: And Bob, yeah. you mentioned about, um, sorry, um, you mentioned about, Bob, like the firms and like, will they be willing to even foot the bill to pay for their lawyers and staffers to go to these conventions? And I find it interesting because a lot of big law firms, they're not even, they haven't even, you know, publicly announced when they're going to require, or request people to come back into the office. So if like you're already in person conventions, will there be people that really want to go there and maybe risk um, being around people they don't even know and when they don't even feel comfortable going to the office with people that they maybe know and kind of like spacing out, spacing out the uh, cubicles and desk and everything like that. So I'm really interested to see, will there be that much like, will people, enough people come to these conventions? Will they feel comfortable or some people kind of like, you know, I might want to take a little bit more time.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Plus, I know uh, people always behave very, you know, responsibly and carefully in Vegas. So (laughs) there's that. I mean, I don't know. know.
2: My concern in Vegas in August, like, and I think I'm going to go too, but like my only concern is it, it, as you said, it is unpleasantly hot there. And to go to the exhibit hall, the Avatar costume that I bought for in person shows is really bulky and, yeah <laughs> see this is the problem with everyone being muted <laughs> while ever it's an inside joke talks. yeah
0: yeah <laughs> we were all laughing our avatars were laughing at that initially
5: i was thinking you're wearing a costume <laughs> and you're going to be blue but then i i like this movie uh, avatar and then it, it took me a minute
4: i could see that i could see this thing going either way i mean uh you know i think there's such a pent-up demand for or desire for people to be back together that if the you know if it if it reaches that tipping point where people feel generally safe i mean they could have a very strong showing i think but I
2: don't know
4: yeah i think it's too. going to
5: depend on the research with the variants and how effective the vaccines are against those variants that's the sort of for me the up yeah. in the air parts of the whole thing yeah so.
0: Well, uh, that actually can kind of segue off in a couple of different directions of things we have to talk about, but but maybe that segues to uh, uh, Steve to Steve your story because uh, one of the uh, well, why don't you talk about what your story is because that that yeah. kind of relates to this general one issue of, how, of whether we're recovering from COVID or not. Yeah, the one I picked up on that
4: sorry, I don't have the author's name in front of me, maybe one of you do, but uh, it was announced that Ropes and Gray, which is a fairly prominent firm, uh, has set the day for people to come back. Um, and exactly. reading the story, it it didn't suggest to me that it was an optional day to come back. It sort of sounded like this is the day that we will come back and we all need to be back and we all need to be in the office and. By God, we're going to do it, um, and it sort of set me to thinking. Particularly after I was reading Victoria's piece uh, about court systems and what they're doing. Um, you know, there's, we've had a lot of talk about this is really the the inflection point for legal tech and innovation. And you know, now that we've seen how wonderful it is to work from home in our pajamas with our cats running around and all that jazz, we'll never want to go back. And You know, I sort of wonder uh, what's going to happen, whether law firm leadership is going to say, as many of them seem to believe, that we really need to have everybody in the office come hell or high water, and, you know, we we are not too interested in uh, remote work and and all that. I mean, I don't know, I mean, uh, as I say, in reading Victoria's piece, I sort of wondered the same with with courts. Uh, we started out, it looked like the virtual online court idea was really getting traction and people were, courts were enthusiastic, litigants were enthusiastic, clients that pay the bills were enthusiastic. But when you sit down and ask yourself today, You know, if we could go back, if we can go to ILTA and it's safe, if we can go back to the courtrooms and it's safe, how many litigants, litigators will be interested in doing virtual trials, uh, for example? Uh, Depositions may be different, although, you know, there's still, I think, a a strong view in the world of litigators that they're not as, as good as, Actual depositions, um, which I don't particularly share the view of, but uh, I hear so that. So, Steve,
6: common. on the on the uh, depositions, I, I hear the same thing from litigators, but more and more from the clients who pay for those litigators. Not going to fund them. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so you know, when you think, is it as good? Maybe not. Is it good enough? Probably.
4: Yeah, I I mean, there's it,
5: all the, sorry, go ahead.
4: It, it's, it is, and I've always said that's, you know, where where true innovation will come is when the, when the clients sort of say this, no more, you know, we're not going to do it this way anymore. Um, so that'll be interesting, you know, particularly in the insurance world, uh, I can so- certainly see a carrier saying we're going to pay for this, we're not going to pay for this. Kind of stuff anymore but then of course you get into this you know sort of responsibility of a lawyer hired by a carrier to the real client at the insured and you know could very easily say well this is this is detracting from my uh from my uh, ability to represent my client and i have to take a deposition and that's a strong leverage point you know the other thing i thought about when you were talking about was another story i saw which was a uh, story out uh, about a, an MDL judge uh, in, I believe, Georgia or South Carolina. Um, and if you know how that works, I mean, there's always this very bitter fight over uh, who will be the lead MDL lawyers. And this federal judge said, okay, we're going to have a diverse group of MDL lawyers that represent these people. And, uh, and, and she did it. Uh, I mean, they have several women, several people of color. And I was thinking, you know, in terms of when you said clients are going to force it, you know, we also maybe see that with judges, who are going to say, you know, you guys all had your chance to do something about this non diverse situation that we have in in law. And if you don't do it, we will.
0: (laughs) So, you know,
4: maybe, maybe that's a reason for optimism. So sorry, Bob, I got us all off track. Yeah, no,
0: well, I wonder whether we should have Victoria just kind of summarize her story because it's very related to what you're talking about. And then we can come back to the dis- discussion. But.
1: Yeah, I wrote an article earlier this week about kind of like a follow up from an article from a couple of months ago about like, courts across the country, um, well, state governments across the country, they're facing budget cuts. And some of those state, um, governors have mentioned like specifically making significant cuts to their court systems. And I reached out to some of those affected court systems to ask, could, you know, video conferencing and that type of technology be at stake or, you know, could that potentially be on the chopping block? Um, and they said, when it comes, when it comes to technology, video conferencing will technology would be the last thing they would cut because that's what they need to kind of keep the doors open, especially with COVID-19 concerns from staffers, judges, litigants, you know, the public, but still providing those services, but remotely. Um, And I reached out uh, last week to some of those court systems about, okay, you um, implemented video conferencing tech. Are you guys looking at any additional technology or processes, you know, to deal with potential um, case backlogs during COVID-19 shutdowns or, you know, lingering health concerns that some people maybe don't? Don't want to come into the courts for some um, legal matters, and it was kind of split around. Like some people, a lot of court systems, they, well, a few of them, they said they did implement some maybe um, pe- plexiglass and you know separating people during jury trials or just waiting for their matters, those types of things. But when it came to technology, some of them, like in California, they said, "Oh, we already gave these suggestions about you know providing digital uh, services and you know." providing um, checklists for how to do some legal matters online to kind of simplify when people actually do come to the court um, courthouse to have all the paperwork and documents that they need to kind of like simplify um those types of uh, services but in georgia it was interesting because they did input, uh they did put together a uh, some video conferencing software specifically to start using Zoom. But when I spoke to them, they said they also wanted to implement like a digital evidence sharing platform, but they weren't able to find the funds for it. So that was something that they said, Hey, this could be useful beyond just COVID-19. It will make things more efficient, more safer, but they couldn't find the funding for it because, you know, Georgia did, face um, some staffing cuts. And I think they even said they tried to see if they can get some money from um, the COVID-19 government funding, but that money went towards more PPE and they couldn't get any for technology. And I think to what Nikki and Steve, Steve and Molly were saying, like it really innovation, well tech innovation in courts, I think will really, will they have to have the funds for the second innovation to actually occur. If they don't have kind of like, you know, taxpayer dollars or someone willing to fund these initiatives, it won't happen. Even if you have some court systems that say, like, hey, you know, this would be really useful even beyond COVID 19. It really um, hinges on funding. And with like kind of states not having as much revenue, I don't know if we'll see it necessarily, um, you know, courts really looking any different from like pre uh, pre
5: 2019.
0: Yeah. I wonder if it, I don't know if any of you were on that uh, the uh, ABA uh, Women in Legal Tech uh, Women of Legal Tech Summit that was held this week is a, a two-day program uh, from the Legal Technology Resource Center. Uh, but one of the uh, most interesting programs they had was uh, three judges from LA was it the LA County Courts or something, which is apparently the largest trial court system in in the country. Um, and they're, they're, the three judges were uh, all members of the technology committee uh, uh, for that court system. Um, and they, they I, I thought it was really interesting because they talked a lot about steps they had been taking to adopt, you know, make greater use of technology in advance of COVID, but how COVID, you know, like we've all heard, accelerated the need to get that technology working and up to speed. Uh, the, the one funny thing I, I thought is somebody it's at, at the Q and a session at the end, somebody kind of asked them about how are you getting the budget for all of this? And they sort of didn't flinch at that. They didn't, it wasn't like this was a, a they didn't make it sound like this was an out of the ordinary expenditure, that this was just, you know, part of how they were allocating their, the court, the court budget, uh, and it was within the the parameters. If the way I understood it anyway, it was within the parameters of the court budget to do this, but they had really, um, you know, and, and also the other thing I, that was interesting about it is a lot of the technology they talked about or, or at least showed was, it reminded me of, uh, judge schlegel in, in new orleans because a lot of it is kind of off the shelf stuff that uh, you know it, not necessarily something custom built for courtrooms or, or whatever else uh but uh, i don't know if that's taped at all but anybody's interested in this topic might want to see if they could find that uh, presentation from those three judges because it was really uh really interesting
1: bob it's interesting that california even though i think they had like a They did have a court budget cut, but they also received the court system, they received like 25 million for court technology specifically. I was like, that's something that she read about. Like a lot of other states were able to kind of have that fund. And speaking to the official in California, and he was like, okay, yeah, of course, some courts systems and counties that they're in, they may be facing different types of need. But he said, like, they do have that technology grant to kind of like, if they need to implement, they have that access. A lot of other states don't. And I know Georgia was one of those. It's kind of like we couldn't find the money for it. So it does kind of vary based on the jurisdiction and kind of like, yeah. where can they find the money? Yeah.
2: So California's uh, state tax revenue is actually up over 2020 was up over 2019, which mm. no most states didn't have this luxury. But California, I don't know what it is. I, I assume because people from colder states relocated there or something, but uh, yeah, they have more money now. So hopefully no more cuts.
5: One thing I'd wanted to point out about the virtual court um, appearances is appearances versus trials or hearings. What I've heard from judges that I've spoken to locally is that it's the appearances that they're really gung ho on. It saved them a ton of time, made their um, dockets way more efficient. um, And they really love this idea of having, Virtual court appearances, meaning when you just show up and um, either in a criminal case or a civil litigation matter, and it's just a, a a short appearance where you're reporting on the status or providing an update. And for busy, uh, especially criminal defense attorneys who spend their mornings hopping from court to court, and then what slows the courts down is they call the defense attorney's name or the client's name, and they're off in another court because they waited so long and they got called into that court, and so. When you can have people appearing virtually, you don't have to have people running around the courts the courts the entire morning. So I think that you may see the more routine types of appearances still being done virtually if the parties agree to it versus um, hearings and trials, which are often far, and depositions, which are far more difficult from a litigator's perspective.
6: Yeah, and I, I think that's for sure in the civil space um, and even in the criminal justice space, I'll, I'll just throw out because it's been a couple of weeks, I wrote about uh, the kiosk system that um, St. Louis created um, for their North County. Um, they now have a kiosk court because they realized during the um, pandemic that there were definite, we've talked about this a little bit, definite um, e- um, equity issues with um, bandwidth and um, making appearances for um, low income residents and especially from the North County area. So they established a kiosk system. They already had a, a, a way for uh, people to come into the court Into a, um, they were initially calling it a Zoom garden um, and have little, little spots that you could go make your appearance. Um, and then they decided to go ahead and create an outpost in North County. So I, I thought. I, so I think that there's probably going to be somewhat of a hybrid. I mean, there's an expense in that, but then, you know, take away from the time and the commitment um, of having a fully staffed um, bench for appearances, and I'm hoping that we'll see some money shift.
0: You did yeah, say Zoom Garden, hope,
4: right? Ultimately, we would see the advantages of that, and it would lead to more substantive hearings. Being done online. Um, you know, it may, <clears throat> it may never have the bet the company trial that was done virtually, but there are lots of trials that don't happen, frankly, because of the expense and the unfairness uh, of everybody having to go to the courthouse and sitting through a trial and all the time and disruption and all of that. And, you know, there'd be some real advantages uh, to being able to do some of that virtually. Um, both for the litigants and the jurors and the witnesses and everybody else involved, but you know, like most of you, I'm not sure we're going to see that anytime soon. Uh, but I do think the appearances. I mean, you know, California for, and other states for years have had appearances via telephone. Um, you Why know, <laughs> well, never? Why well, never dawned on somebody to say, you know you don't have to be here by phone. You could be here, like, you know, a video chat would be but nobody had never dawned on anybody that that was a possibility, I guess. Uh, so that, you know, that's not much of a step to go to, to kind of virtual sort of hearings that would do away with a lot of the motion hour inefficiencies that we've seen over the years.
3: I did, I did want to bring up a point about Steve's original article that he talked about with, with ropes and gray. I mean, I, I guess the way, the way the article was phrased was there's probably like like a memo that got sent that got sent around and then and then a reporter got a hold of it somehow, um, so who knows maybe maybe it's just them maybe maybe you know other firms have done the same thing or released similar memos that just haven't been been leaked to the press or whatnot. But I mean you know one thing that we were we we've we we been talking about is or wondering is whether or not things are going to go back to normal after after uh, the pandemic is over and like is it going to be like a more hybrid kind of thing where people you know more people kind of working at home and. And, and not coming to the office as much, but you know it seems like at least this firm doesn't doesn't want that. Um, and you know, I mean, just I, I haven't reported on Ropes and Gray in a long time. Like I did, I did a you know I did a couple of profiles of people there and whatnot back when I worked at uh, ALM. Uh, and I know that they've all they've always been very very like. I mean, all, all firms are very protective of their culture. All firms think that they're think that they think that their their culture is the best. But I I felt like Ropes and Gray, like they they especially wanted wanted to get that point across that their culture was awesome and that you know everyone loved it there and that you know uh, they had this like really special kind of kind of connection with everybody there so maybe 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 they felt like something was missing um by having everybody online and not being in the office that they didn't have that same kind of that same kind of office culture or who knows maybe they just want everybody back in their offices so that they can keep in keep tabs on people and and whatnot so you know i mean i i thought that was interesting just 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 you know the a a just that, that 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 memo coming out, and B that it was that firm that that uh, that um, you know got publicized.
6: What I'm starting to hear from trainers, in particular, it, um, at law firms, is that they're they're having a really hard time with the um, the spontaneous um, opportunities for um, associates to learn. Um, by being pulled into an office, or pulled onto a call, or you know, just sit in the back, and the, all of that is is missing, um, and the opportunities are hard to recreate in a virtual environment. So, kind of when we were talking about pipeline issues too, you know, trying to mentor and um, train the next generation is is a challenge still in a remote environment, or especially. Yeah, that-
4: and I hear you, Molly. I have kind of strong opinions on that because you know it's that was sort of the traditional model that you will go and sit at the foot of the partner and you know derive this knowledge from all high, on high. Of course, the problem with that is it was could be very happenstance, right? I mean, I was fortunate enough to to latch on to a you know a, a partner who was meaner than a snake, but <laughs> on the other hand, taught me a lot of things and. Other people don't have that opportunity, and i, I had hoped that that when we start thinking about the training of associates in the age of COVID and remote, that you know it, it would maybe force firms to sit out and say, "A, what does it mean to be a good lawyer? What's what's define it?" And then let's let's put together a a consistent training for, program toward that end instead of this, you know oh, I bumped into partner A at the water cooler and she said, you know, you ought to try this or that or the other. Um, and, and, you know, query how much of that really goes on. I mean, in, in particularly large law firms where there's so much of a pressure both for partners and associates to be billing their time, not chit-chatting at the water cooler, as valuable as that is. I mean, I don't mean to suggest it's not valuable, but, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I think we... Law firms have put too much stock in that and not enough emphasis on what does it really mean and what are we really training toward
0: uh, Uh, in a comprehensive way. I mean, there's no reason the hybrid model can't work for even training uh, in in that vein. Uh, You know, I've also just as much heard some associates say that they've had more FaceTime with partners than during the Zoom era than they would have otherwise had. So it, it can work both ways and I, I don't know whether I actually said this about ILTA, but ILTA will be a hybrid conference and not just an in-person conference. And I, I, you know, I, I really, I still think, despite what the ropes and gray uh, story may be suggesting that that's generally gonna be the model going forward is some kind of a hybrid blend of, of what we used to have and what we've had for the last year uh, and, and mixing it together in some kind of a hybrid form. Um, while we're on the topic of courts, Joe, you had another court-related story.
2: Yeah, so um, we were talking about courts and whether or not they go back to normal because lawyers will want them to go back to normal and be the same old courts they always were. Maybe that's a bad idea. Um, And this comes from uh, our friends out West. I've been talking over the last year or so. I struck up some conversations with Sound Jury Consulting, and they do a lot of data-driven analysis of juries. One of the things that they did was a comparison because in Seattle, they have Zoom trials going on. And as it turns out, the virtual trial world, they're getting statistically significant younger and more diverse jury pools when it's online than when it's in person. Uh, They are still digging into why that would be, but... You know, some of it could be just, you know, in a COVID world, those folks reply to things they might not reply to if it was in person. But another alternative hypothesis is that the Zoom day takes less time out of the day. So the people who otherwise would say, I can't take this time, I've got to, I got to go do this work, I got to do that work, which happens to be younger people with lots of debt and often uh, minority potential jurors, uh, they aren't having that problem now. And so they are showing up and being part of the jury pool, which means that we have a ton of issues with the way our juries are constituted and whether or not they actually look like the jury of the peers that they're they're supposed to be. Virtual trials seem to be making some headway into fixing that. And for Seattle, the, the... non-white uh, population of the jury pool is now almost what the actual population of the city is as opposed to usual when it's something like 80 82 white uh as it's been pushed back to where the actual demographics suggest it should be if you took a random sample uh which strikes me as the a reason i understand that in person there's a lot of benefits to being in person but there's at least some argument that perhaps virtual trials, we were talking about hearings, which I agree with the cattle calls and everything being the most obvious place. But maybe there is a reason for at least some trials to be virtual and or a hybrid model or something because it seems to be doing better for the jurors. And I'll say I actually got uh, approached after I wrote that article by a family law judge in uh, not in Washington, in middle America, who was like, I need to, can you put me in touch with those people? I need that data. I want our family court hearings to stay virtual uh, because we sometimes have trials and like we have commented that the jury pool for the trials that we have in these family court things is better. And he's like, but it's all been anecdotal. I just need somebody with like a real large pool of data, which uh, king I mean, it's not Los Angeles County, but King County, Washington is a pretty big one. So uh, yeah, it, there, there are people out there who think there's a value to this and the jury argument is the best one I've heard.
0: It, it not only is the jury more represented, the jury more representative, but um, your article suggested that by sort of skewing the jury pool to a younger age, that can actually affect how they decide cases.
2: Well, now, now that, that brings it to the fact that the person collecting, the people collecting the data are jury consultants. So their, their mindset is, is as useful as this data is for us generally as journalists, their mindset was how does this affect potential, uh, yeah. p- potential clients? And yeah, I mean, I actually talked to these people during the height of COVID when they were suggesting that they were, they were seeing the world as in for a lot of big business Verdicts at that time, as states would open up, but but have a no excuse for people not to go because COVID, and so they were saying, yeah, what we're seeing is a bunch of largely old white conservative people are the only people showing up because they think COVID's a myth, but that means that the verdicts tend to be very pro-business and so on. So that was what was going on then, but these same folks now dealing with the the zoom trials are saying that uh, it actually can be a little bit more representative of a pool. And with the younger folks, one that's less uh, sympathetic to the business, having cut off somebody's hand hmm. metaphorically or literally as the case may be.
4: Well, the, the interesting thing about that is, uh, you know, that is true. The, the question Sort of remains is okay. You, you get young, more younger people that are able to participate, but then you know there's still the risk that there's a big pool of people out there who might be called for jury duty in a in a physical world, but cannot don't have the the bandwidth the internet connection to to participate. And how does that? What's the possible skewing of the result there? Um, but I mean it's. Uh, it's kind of great to hear that, I think, because, um, you know, that would that would suggest that that there is reason for optimism about a certain percentage of, of trials being conducted online. And, I, you know, as a, as a former litigator, I've for years have been concerned that we don't try enough cases. Uh, it's 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 kind of become a forgotten art. And you can say, well, that's not terribly important, but it is important because, you know, how do you properly value the exposure of the case, any case, unless you've got some metric to go by? I mean, has it just become a settlement value that you can't really quantify? I mean, historically it's been, what would a jury do with these facts, you know? And if we don't have enough data pools for that, then that's a problem. So if we if we can if we can generate a way to have more trials, um, you know, I, th- I think that's a good thing for, for us as a as a profession. Actually,
2: I'll quickly say to your point about bandwidth that uh, King County, Washington, one would assume is one of the more connected counties that uh, in the country. I mean, you're at the center of Microsoft. That's going to be better than some. So this may not be translatable to other places. Hey,
6: I'll just. Uh, th- the, um, the courts that are doing a lot of the um, online uh, jury work right now are, are looking at um, accessibility issues for the pool. Um, so Texas, in particular, is really exploring this this area um, to to evaluate whether they're getting they're for sure they're also seeing wider reach and um, and acceptance of, of jury summons. Uh, but they're but they're evaluating who is not being reached.
5: I think it's fantastic. And it's, I love how we're just part of this big grand experiment and it's unexpected, but at the end of this, we're going to have all this data that we never would have thought that we had to kind of help move the bar of justice further along, you know, and provide access to justice to more people and hopefully in a way that is more equitable. So it just gave
0: me exactly the segue I was looking for. Good point, because I am to please about
4: <laughs> um, how mediators are enthusiastically embracing online mediation uh, and how they've been so much more successful. And one of the reasons that, that is, was pointed out is people kind of behave themselves better <laughs> and, you know, they don't pontificate and, you know, go overboard. I mean, it's something about being on camera and, you know, sitting at your desk, you know, it's not less of a performance and they're making a lot more headway and, and Lord knows it's, it's a whole lot less disruptive to have an online mediation. So that may be Nikki, to your point, I mean, we may come out of this as, as that for mediation, that could very well be the new norm Uh both because it's easier to do and because it's more successful, apparently.
0: Yeah. Um, so the the transition was uh, that two weeks ago on this show, we, we've actually had somebody write a blog post in response to our one of our episodes, which is a first for this show, I think. But two weeks ago on this show, Molly talked about Jason Taché's. I think it was two weeks ago, talked about Jason Taché's proposal for the uh, federal government to appropriate uh, about a billion dollars for the courts of the country to uh, uh, basically adopt a a standardized uh, digital data infrastructure so that we can track better data about what's going on in the courts. Um, And uh, I I think I I mentioned during that show that, that Jim McMillan was in the audience who works for the National Center for State Courts uh, so Jim has actually gone ahead and written uh, a, a blog post that responds to uh, both to our conversation and, and more specifically to Jason's uh, proposal. So I just wanted to raise that. I'm going to drop the link uh, in the chat here. Or did somebody just do that? Um, and uh, people should just check it out and read it. Uh, and uh, he's, he makes some, some good points uh, in response to Jason's proposal and uh, he is uh, somebody who knows whatever he speaks, so. Um, I'll
6: just throw out the, the yeah. other realization that Jason had um, it, that I think could inform some of this is that um, as an NGO, as a, um, the State Department has an entire team of, and pr- a plan in place to um, help um, international, uh, help foreign countries adopt uh, um, technology Platforms for their court systems, so we do this um, internationally um, as rule of law building um, but we haven't turned that those resources inward um, and offered those resources to um, states so it just as a that, that was a component that i I um, wish I hadn't known about um, bef- before before this so we might have to you know try to get another blog post out of it or I'll write about it
0: there you go. Uh, all right. Uh, Nikki, you want to talk about uh, another another ethics opinion?
5: Yeah.
0: We <laughs> are um, ethics, the ethics queen
5: lately. Yeah. <laughs> um, especially in New York. I'm always interested in what's happening in New York since I'm based in New York. And my blog is called Sue Generous in New York Law Blog. I used to focus just on New York. Um, but this was an ethics opinion um, from the New York State Bar Association 1213. Uh, I'll put my blog post. In the um, chat. And essentially, it interested me because um, the New York State Bar went in the opposite direction of some other jurisdictions that we've talked about lately in terms of um, lawyer client matching services. And um, Although some of the other opinions were not on that particular, um directly. It's sort of this issue in some ways of like fee splitting with non-lawyers. And that's been something we've been discussing a lot lately because some of the other jurisdictions have um, said that in some situations that may be permissible, which sort of goes in this different direction than um, anyone has ever gone before. But the New York State Bar is still firmly entrenched on the other side of this. And what this opinion talked about was, um, uh, a lawyer inquired whether participating in a online site that matched them with people who had traffic violations would be ethical. And I googled it, and they didn't mention the site in the opinion, but there is a site online where um, this is a thing, where they connect you with someone to handle your traffic tickets. And the New York State Bar said that this particular site under this scenario was more like the impermissible AVO scheme that they had uh, knocked down in the past than other situations that they had permitted because it uh, through a number of different mechanisms implied that you were getting matched with a better lawyer or the best lawyer or someone who was more qualified than others. And so therefore that was problematic. If it was just a simple mechanical matching um, that was neutral, that would be okay. But in this case, it was more like that impermissible AVO scheme of the AVO legal marketplace um, that they had Said was improper years before. Well, so I just more thought it was than, really more than
0: implied, didn't they? Like directly, didn't the site directly say, "We're going to hook you up with the best traffic lawyer" or something like that? Or
5: yeah, I mean, the opinion <laughs> went a little bit further <laughs> to try to create a um, some structure to help people make a decision one yeah. way or another about whether they can participate in sites. But in this particular case, there was that language there on the site. So yeah, for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, it seemed like a pretty flagrant uh, example of bad uh, bad lawyer referral site. Um, all right. Uh, what else did we have? Molly, you did not have anything this week, I think, or did you?
6: No, I, I can, um, I forgot how long it's been since we were <laughs>
0: together. You could make so. something up.
6: <laughs> My only, so, um, since we met, I had a chance to attend the Formtastic, um, conference from, uh, Theory and Principle. And I thought it was just a really it was a great event it was another one um on the uh on uh, on a really social platform which i totally wasn't prepared for because i'm so used to being not talking to people i you have to really force yourself to actually have a conversation forgot about that part um but the but it was a lot of really good information about um best practices for forms and how far behind every court is i mean i find me some good examples of courts and forms um, and I thought one of the interesting points is that there there are um, something like 97% of matters in the civil system uh, or the civic tech system are involved some type of form, and that has to be close to 100% in the court system, and they're all just really poorly designed. So um, one of the ones that stuck out the most for me and re- resonated the most was the Um, how forms can actually um, cause more trauma, especially in domestic violence cases. Um, So there was a a case study of revamping the forms for the restraining orders in California, which I think they said is a required form and they um, um, take about 87,000 of those forms a year. And um, so they've completely transformed how that form will operate and hopefully that'll get adopted. So I just thought it was interesting, an entire conference just on forms.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Any comments? Um, Victor, you were Talking, we want to talk about. I mean, we lots of us could talk about tech show coming up next week. But uh, yeah, you no, mentioned wanting to talk about it. Steve's on the board.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, just yeah, just yeah. Everybody, go you know, tune in the tech show. It'll be it'll be virtual. It'll be you know you can watch from the comfort of your own home. You don't even have, you don't even, you don't even have to dress up, but you know it is recommended <laughs> that you do so. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, just you know, it, it'll be interesting just 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 with with this format because yeah, last year I think. I think I think I think Tech Show was was one of the last events to actually take place live before everyone wanted to lockdown. I remember I think I think I saw I saw Nikki I think right at the end of Tech Show and I, and I was like wow if we've been like a week later we probably would have been canceled. Yeah. Um, so um, so yeah like so so yeah it, it, it was interesting to see to see how how they pull it off. Um, you know, they're, they're, the sessions are a little bit shorter this year I think and I think they're stretched out over more days. So um, you know, tune in at your own convenience.
5: I have a don't, question. Go, go
0: ahead, Bob. I was going to say, don't miss Startup Alley. I love it. The opening event of Startup Tech Show on Monday yep. is yeah, you're, Startup you're always, Alley. you the
3: opener, Bob. So. <laughs> I'm on with the opener.
0: And uh, it's going to be kind of weird because we, it's. A, I guess a lot of the uh, things are all pre-recorded this year. And uh, so we've got the startup presentations are all going to be pre-recorded segments of t- of two and a half minutes each, but they also then get 30 seconds to talk about their sec- their company live. And I got to introduce them live. So it's going to be a weird kind of a switching back and forth from, I don't know how it's going to work, but uh, and we have to do it all within a really tight timeline. So it'll be an interesting experiment.
4: That, that sounds like an event that couldn't have tax <laughs> oh,
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Knock on wood.
3: That's the first, the the first event of the, uh, of the of the of the week. Yeah. yeah,
0: and I'm going to try and do it all from the operating room while I'm performing surgery at the
5: same Right, time. <laughs> that's a good idea.
0: <laughs> May the force um,
2: be with you, Bob.
5: I have a question, though.
2: Don't I, get I him I in like trouble. I, I'm his emergency I, contact. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
5: I wondered if I'm missing something. I looked, you know, I um, I, I'm um, an attendee, and I logged on and. Are there, I was expecting, but I don't know where I got this idea, but that there would be like some sessions that were not just CLE sessions aside from the um, Startup Alley. And I don't see anything like that. Are there any actual formal like fun sessions that I'm missing that are not like CLE or presentation sessions? Like, I don't know, here's how to make a drink or here's how to cook (laughs) something or you know, let's do trivia, I don't know, like the things that you're seeing at some other conferences and I, I don't know if I'm, I'm missing it, if there's like a section I'm not seeing or if that's just not part of the conference. Does anyone know?
4: I wouldn't. I mean, maybe I'm maybe weird to have that. I haven't, I haven't looked at it. I thought,
1: oh, I thought Nikki was gonna ask where are the avatars, but
4: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right.
5: No, I just, I'm wondering where's like the, uh, that's just a trend I've noticed. Yeah, I didn't see
0: anything places. like that in there either. Like I, legally, I, I, I was right? just I checking think, it out this I morning. I, I logged into the platform. Uh, I mean, the platform looked like it looked like had a nice platform, a uh, nice overall platform. Um, I was looking for a way to like uh, bookmark or calendar the things I wanted to go to, uh, and it didn't have that. But it does have a little link where you can click it out to your own calendar, which is probably actually better because then I'll actually see it. Um, but uh, I didn't. There see is any a social way to do, do that. Here.
5: I was watching the video. Um, it's oh, yeah. not obvious at all. When you click remove or add, there's when you go up to the search bar, there's like a little icon. You can click on that and yeah. it'll show you your schedule that you've created, but it's super hard to find it. But that is there. It's in like that tech video, ABA tech video at the very beginning in the help section. But it's hard to um, figure out where that data went when you save yeah. it to your calendar. Yeah. But um, the sessions look really interesting. Uh, um, it's a great lineup and it uh, looks like a really... Um, Diverse speaker, like set of speakers, which is great. I just was looking for the party, but you know,
4: (laughs) I guess. Yeah, it's if you don't know how to make a drink. I don't know about the rest of you, but I I, I think I've had enough virtual online happy hours for (laughs) (laughs) for the
3: rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. taste of Chicago kind of loses a little bit when you know, when you do it, when you have to do it like over Zoom. I and mean, anyway yeah, sure. you wait
4: what
2: is this then
4: you're, you're, Anyway you look at it you're still pretty much drinking alone so <laughs>
0: Um what I think I thought is worth mentioning about this past week in the legal tech news is it was a, through a, a, I think an unplanned convergence of events it was sort of a kind of a big week for women in legal, legal tech in a sense because there was this ABA uh the, the uh Legal Technology Resource Center Women of Legal Tech Summit uh, and honoring the new inductees and, and putting on some really good programming. Uh, completely separate from that, but at like the same time, um, uh, there was a, a, a Women of Legal Tech, uh, the founders or something, I forget what they called the program, um, the Priori put on that was a really good panel of founders of of women tech companies just kind of talking about some of the issues they faced and and whatnot. Uh, This was also the week in which uh, Ilta announced the names of five influential women in legal tech. Uh, So all these things kind of converge this week to uh, kind of make a little mini women of legal tech week. Uh, And then uh, I thought actually the other thing kind of maybe related to all that is that The story I did yesterday was Kristen Sande, who is a co founder of Paladin, who was the speaker at one of those summits, and her co founder was a speaker at the other one. Um, But she started this created this uh, venture fund this week. She kind of helped launch this venture fund to help fund diverse uh, founders, not not focused exclusively on legal tech, but they'll take applications from legal tech companies. But um, I thought that was a really interesting development as well. And and she kind of talking to her about it, she really emphasized that she's kind of hoping that maybe others in the legal tech world will start to think about creative or, or out of the box ways to promote uh diversity within the legal tech industry by doing things like starting your own venture i didn't even know you could go start your own venture fund i mean we could we could all get together and start a venture fund if we wanted to so it's an interesting week uh bob uh we have to have capital to do that (laughs) no we don't you go out and raise other people give you the capital venture funds don't use their own capital they go out and get it from other people
2: I mean, look. If anyone's familiar with the saga of rich energy energy drinks, you don't need capital. It was a it was like a multi million dollar operation that turned out to have never done anything or ever have had any money.
0: Yeah, I mean this this fund they just went out. And they've got a hundred a hundred or more different people who contributed funds, uh, and uh, they got oversubscribed. They got more than they were expecting to get, uh, and you know they got some. Uh, you know, founders and and CEOs and whatever of of big businesses to participate in it. Uh, uh, But uh, no no reason somebody couldn't do that with more of a a legal tech diversity focused fund.
4: Bob, I stand corrected. I guess it was my Neanderthal thinking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You and Joe Biden. (laughs) Uh, All right. Anything else? all right then
2: technically we didn't rant or rave we didn't
0: do you have any yeah
6: i'm souring on clubhouse it's
2: Ooh. it's uh,
6: that's my I, I mean it's i'm a little sad about it but they haven't addressed all the privacy issues um uh, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to be going that way and um the the rooms at least on law and tech are becoming so overly philosophical that i i become enraged
0: so um I still have I still haven't found enough time to invest a lot of time in Clubhouse. And every time I drop in, it tends to be the same group of people who were in the last room I was in talking about more or less the same thing they were talking in the last room I was in. But we are gonna we are talking about maybe having a little clubhouse group for this group, right, Nikki? Is that what yeah. Caroline Hill was suggesting? Great, we try and organize a weekly.
5: Maybe just like, uh, the idea of like a biweekly or something, just room that's focused on the, what we talk about maybe, or some other tech issue that, you know, people that can join, join when we just, but I don't, but I don't know. I mean, it seems like it might be an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Um, and if you have yeah. enough people that are well-known and talk about a topic, I think it's a bit of a draw.
0: Yeah. No, oh, I think it could be. Good. I've, I've, I have actually been in a couple of good discussions on Clubhouse, but, uh, And we should maybe talk more about one of our episodes about some of these privacy issues because it it is an interesting uh, topic. And uh, I've seen a couple of different pieces out there about that that address bits and pieces of them. I I was surprised I saw one that that was uh, very upset about the uh, news that Clubhouse is apparently recording all of these conversations, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people. Um, and and somebody was uh, you know basically ranting that this is a, a breach uh, that attorneys should be concerned about this for client confidentiality reasons, which seemed to me completely misplaced because if you're talking about your clients on Clubhouse, then you're in trouble already. Let alone whether they're recording it or not. Um, but but there are there are other legitimate issues. Uh, yeah, there are there are a lot of
6: there there are, there are a lot of one. So the biggest one for me is how much it mines your your contact data and presents that and shares that with other people um, that you're that you don't realize. Um, Although I've realized also that signal is doing that. Um, I I think I might have brought that up here too. Um, And and I hadn't hadn't expected that until I saw some uh, uh, saw it suggesting that I connect with more of my contacts um, for the first time.
0: Right. And even if they're not sharing your contacts, even if they weren't doing that, just the fact that they're accessing your contacts can tell them something about your. If you're a lawyer, it can tell them something about your practice and who your clients are, possibly, and uh, maybe more than as somebody pointed. out, I forget who wrote that article, but uh, uh, you know, maybe more than your clients. Maybe your clients don't want anybody to know that you're their lawyer. So, look forward to uh, talking. We can all talk about what happened with Tech Show and whether we found the parties.